Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. from the book of Job, and most people are unaware of this beautiful piece in Job. A lot of people kind of stay away from Job. It has a bad reputation for being dark and depressing, and, and it's actually a fascinating book. There's lots of speeches in it, which can be long and tedious if you don't have someone to help you make that more fun. But today, you heard a piece of Job's speech, and a lot of us have to stop and go, huh, I didn't know that was in there. In fact, a few weeks ago, my mother was here visiting me, and I said, hey, listen to this. And I started reading to her. She goes, that's pretty. What is that? I said, that's Job. She was like, oh, okay. Now, my mother's read Job before, but of course, what sticks is what most people think of about Job. They know that the story goes that God is bragging about Job. God is bragging about God's servant Job to one of the angels in heaven, and the angel says, well, wait a second. You say Job is so amazing. I see Job being amazing, but I also see Job being really, really blessed. So is Job amazing because you've blessed him, or do you bless him because he's just been amazing? And there ensues the test. Let's see. Let's see why Job is so amazing. Well, you can also tell when someone hasn't read Job because then they say something like, oh, she has the patience of Job. And you're like, I hope you're being sarcastic. Because it doesn't take till chapter 3 before Job is like, God, why didn't you just kill me on the day of my birth? This is bad. Job is a complainer, and Job has plenty of impatience in Job. So if somebody says they have the patience of Job, huh, side, side sermon, we're not talking about that today. Instead, we're talking about what Job points out. We're talking about righteousness. Righteousness is a word that gets thrown out a lot. What is righteousness and where does it come from? Who bestows righteousness? Well, Job starts by recounting in this speech the good old days. He's talking to his friends and he says, I remember when I used to go to the gate of the city, the seats of power, and I was honored and respected there. I remember when the young men would see me and they would give me deference. I remember when the aged would rise up and let me have their seat. I remember when the powerful, the nobles, they would even be quiet and listen to me. And they couldn't even rebuke me because the tongues were stuck to the roofs of their mouths. And people heard me and they saw me and they approved and they understood that what I was doing was right. And what was it that I was doing? I delivered the poor who cried. I I was the helper to the orphan. I blessed the wretched. I focused on making the widow's heart sing for joy. I put on righteousness, Job says. It clothed me. Righteousness is not something that is projected outward. That's self-righteousness. That's different. Righteousness comes from God. And so therefore, it is something that adorns us. It is something that God gives to us. It is not something that we take or that we claim for ourselves. It is something that is given. And why why would God choose to make some people righteous? Why would God choose to make anybody righteous, given the current state of humanity? Why? Because that is God's gift. It is a gift of grace to be able to stand before our God, our King, our Savior, 
and to be able to stand in the presence of God and know that God is pleased with us. And sometimes we give God every reason not to be pleased with us. So then the gift of grace and righteousness is even better because we understand that it is something that God chooses to give. God is not required to give righteousness. In fact, the covenants don't even talk about that. The covenants in the Bible talk about God giving us many things, whether it's blessings or being present with us, being our God, leading us, giving us the law and the way to repent and turn and be forgiven, whatever it is. But righteousness is some, something even different than that. Righteousness is God choosing to allow us to be made perfect, to be sanctified and stand just. And as Christians, there is one way for that to happen, and that is the cross. It is the cross by which we are saved. It is the cross and the grace that comes from it that is only able to make us righteous. And it is something that we put on, but like clothes, it is something that we can take off. It is something that we can lose. It is something through which our sin can poke holes and that we can wear thin. And so we must be continually renewed in righteousness. And our scripture today is especially poignant because this is the one-year anniversary to the day of the violence and the protests in Charlottesville that ended in tragedy, pain, suffering, and unfortunately death. And as we've been working towards this, I've been thinking about where I was. And last year on this day, I was not here. I was not in Virginia. I was actually at a rehearsal dinner for a wedding that I was officiating. I just finished the rehearsal. Things seem to be going along swimmingly. And then my social media blows up on my phone, and I'm watching national news coverage of Charlottesville. And I was so hurt and sad and frightened and angry. I was very angry. I was very vocally angry. So vocally angry that I'm pretty sure that anybody in an adjoining hotel room thought I was murdering somebody. There was loud pounding and stomping. There was the loud, um, especially flourish dropping of the Bible on things. There were words coming out that are not appropriate for this venue. There were things going on because I was livid that that was what was being brought to the place where I lived, where I work, where I love, where I take my family, where I watch other people taking their families, and the injustice of that kind of tangible hatred lit me up. I was so engulfed in rage at over what was happening and the fact that people were being beaten and hurt and made to feel unsafe and then that people died drove me to the edge of my control. And here we are one year later and we have to wrestle with righteousness. Well, what is righteousness anyway? Righteousness is God's willingness to cleanse us of our guilt of our sinfulness, of the wrongs, the mistakes, the willful disobedience, the ways in which we have hurt God and hurt others, and if we are completely honest, the ways in which we even hurt ourselves. Righteousness is God saying, I love you too much to let any of this come between us, that I am willing to remove all of this for the sake of our relationship, that I can be with you. 
And the problem with humanity is that we like to put asterisks on things. Righteousness for all except a whole list of people that righteousness isn't for. People who look different. People who live different lives. Their culture seems to clash with ours. People who have a different way of presenting. However we want to put that asterisk, we put it on there. Yet, I searched specifically through all four gospel accounts these past two weeks, and I have yet to find an asterisk on the cross. I have yet to find where God's grace is not for all. I feel like Jesus was very clear when he said, there are two rules for you. Love God and love your neighbor. And if you are willing to love God and love your neighbor, there will be peace on earth. And yet, we seem to want to put an asterisk on neighbor. Who is my neighbor? Is it just the neighbors I like, the ones that trim their lawn appropriately, the ones that take out their trash instead of let it blow all over the neighborhood? Who is my neighbor? Is it the people that look and talk and act and go to church like me? Who is my neighbor? Your neighbor is every human being on earth. That is who your neighbor is. No matter where we go, no matter where we find ourselves, if we were to walk into a mosque, those worshipers would become our neighbors because God has unequivocally said that God's love is for the whole world. And who are we to put an asterisk where God put an exclamation point? God said to us, I love you in spite of your sinfulness. I love you in spite of your failures to love as I love. I love you in spite of your refusal to forgive as I have forgiven you. For the ways in which you constantly walk away and turn your back on my grace, I still love you. So why can't we love like that? Because as people are gathering and watching all over Crozet and Charlottesville and the District of Columbia and probably all over the world, people want to see what the response will be this time. What will happen next? And the lesson that should have been preached and teached and lived out that we should have taught everyone, including ourselves, was that in the face of such hatred, the united love of God stands. That nothing can stand before that, that is hatred. No dislike, no preference for someone similar to yourself can stand justly, righteously before the God of perfect love. And no hatred, no violence can stand before the Prince of Peace. If we refer to Jesus Christ as our Savior, our Prince of Peace, our Mighty Counselor, then we must hear what he says about not hurting others, not with our hands, not with our words, but instead a radical response of love. That is the only righteous way to be. And the church has not always been good about that. You know, I never hear an evangelist say something like this when they talk about 
the incredible, miraculous gift of grace. I never hear someone say, you know, this is the story of the church, of Christianity, of our faith. God so loved the world that God came to earth in human form in Jesus of Nazareth and grew up as one of us, encountering sickness and suffering and death, and then for three years traveled in ministry, preaching, teaching, healing, feeding thousands of people, cleansing people, bringing the lost back into the flock. He entered triumphantly into Jerusalem, and there he was betrayed and crucified. And asterisk, he was a brown man. Asterix, he was a Jew. We don't do that. We don't other Jesus Christ. Instead, we like to think of Jesus Christ like us. But what we ought to do as Christians is think of Jesus Christ as everyone else. That our love for everyone else should be the same love that we would want to honor and glorify our risen Savior. That we would strive Instead of embodying sinful humanity and noticing difference, noticing who has two X chromosomes and who has one, noticing who presents as what gender and what skin color, who decides to wear what when they go out or when they don't. Instead, we would recognize and honor that it is not those things that determine whether someone can be loved, saved, or righteous, but it is God's loving response to anyone that can make one righteous. But we hear it in our talk. We hear it in the way that people talk about things. Have you ever been in a conversation with somebody, and they're telling you how amazing someone is, and then at the end of it, and they have to point out what their skin color was? As if the story is that much more amazing because they weren't white. And I hear it all the time, too, especially once I got here. And, you know, we were in our little honeymoon period where you all still liked me. And people say, oh, we got a new pastor. And, you know, and things are going really well. The sermons are great. And, oh, by the way, she's female. Well, first of all, I think it's obvious. If you tell somebody I'm wearing eight-inch heels, they're going to think I'm either female or a drag queen. And some days, they may not know the difference. But does it matter? I declare to you that it does not matter. It does not matter the height of my shoes or whether or not I'm wearing a skirt or pants. It does not matter whether I have two X chromosomes or a one and a Y. Instead, it does not matter that I am light rather than dark in complexion. What matters is that I stand before you as a sinner who has discovered God's grace. And there is no gender, there is no nationality, there is nothing that defines nor negates the title sinner. Sinner is a title for everyone in humankind. And when we throw it out on people as if it should be a badge of shame, a scarlet letter for them to wear, that person's a sinner. And we are not. We are sinners. Some of us just don't sin as publicly as others do. But we all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. And God does not put an asterisk on the cross for us. If we want to be forgiven, loved, and freed, then it is ours. And we cannot negate what God has done 
by flinging wide the doors to the kingdom of heaven and saying, all may enter in. All may come here. And when we hear people use language and do things that does not reflect the glory of Jesus Christ who loves without equal, then we have a duty to love, to speak, to act. When one is shunned, do we offer them radical hospitality? When someone tears them down with words of hurt and hatred, do we build them back up? The reality is that in this country, Sunday is the most segregated day of the week. More people will be separated today in houses of worship based upon their ethnicity, their race, their skin color than their doctrinal differences. That is not the image that Jesus brought forth. And every body of Christ, ours included, needs to ask itself, if Jesus Christ walked in here right now in the body in which he ascended, would we love him and welcome him? Because based on our current cultural context, he would be on the terror watch list. He would be stopped for random security screenings at the airport. He would be looked at with concern. People would wonder when he reached inside his garments if he was pulling out a weapon. Because we want to think of Jesus like this. And not Jesus as one who came for all. As we watch and we pray and we hope that what happened last year does not repeat itself with more death and violence this year. We have to confront the fact that the separation that is seen in churches on Sundays is a reflection of the separation that we live out Monday through Saturday. Have we embraced the opportunity, and I would dare say the challenge of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ, to confront our willingness to give a wide berth to certain people, to not engage them in freely in conversation and friendship as we would others? Have we wrestled with the fact that we look at some people and we think they are not like us? Are we willing to confront all of that and in the face of it say, I am going to treat this person as though they are my Lord and Savior. And I am going to love them and honor them. I am going to do precisely what Christ commanded. I am going to love God and love them. Because we have to begin to change how we think. The church has gotten better about we're going to love the unlovable. We're going to love the people that society has kicked out. We're, you know, we're starting to embrace that. We're starting to say just because they're differently abled or just because you know, they, they may be on the fringes of normalcy, that's okay. But have we truly turned our hearts to loving people who make us not like them? The people who say and do things. Are we willing to try to love those same people that brought forth a level of profanity from my mouth a year ago that I am ashamed to admit to you? Are we willing to love those people? Because the model that Jesus gave to us of righteousness was that he didn't stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with them and dare them. He went to their homes. He ate meals 
with those who would have stood toe-to-toe. He ate with Pharisees and with scribes and lawyers. He ate with them so that under the auspices of hospitality, in the midst of food and fellowship, when they let down their guard, their heart would be exposed. And he spoke truth to them in love. He told them what the gospel said. He showed them by inviting the sinners to eat beside him too. I will sit with you and with them. We fall short in the church when we don't emphasize that Jesus entered into relationship with his enemies and then commanded us to do likewise, to pray for our enemies, to love them, because there are enemies to the church. There are those who would hear of radical, open love and want to destroy us. There are those who would think that is not true. Certainly God has standards. If God applies standards, we're all in trouble. Because the scriptures say very clearly, all sin and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. Every single one. We comfort ourselves by thinking some fall below us. If God grades on a bell curve, I'll be in. But that is not what Jesus proclaimed. Instead, Jesus proclaimed that we need to look as though we are on the bottom and serve and love upward. That we should love all people and not comfort ourselves by knowing that there's someone else below. I may gossip and lie, and I may download movies illegally, but at least I haven't committed murder, says the average Christian. At least there's someone who's done something more heinous than I. Is that what grace and righteousness look like? Job looked back on his life and he recognized the times that he served the Christ in others. He wouldn't use those words. He didn't know Jesus Christ. But as Christians, we look back and when we do things like bring joy to the widows, when we stand up for the orphan and help them, when we are a father to the fatherless, a mother to the motherless, a friend to the friendless, when we are an aid to the helpless, we are honoring that they are a child of God. And our message isn't one that we use on poster boards with Sharpie and bad grammar. Our message is not to make other people think that we are against them. Our message is that Christ is for all. And until the church discovers a way to preach that, then the hate will continue. And people will put themselves in a position where they will be hurt and others will die. And Jesus came and died so that we would live. And we have to discover the way in which we will do that. This week is the time for us to accept that challenge. At some point this week, you will have the opportunity to engage with someone that you would normally not. Someone that just sets all of your nerves on end. Someone that you know may not even like you. And the challenge of Jesus Christ is, will you walk right up to them and love them as though they are me? Jesus 
did not go out starting political fires. He didn't go out and encourage everybody to stand in the streets, but plenty of people stood in the streets and protest him. Instead, he made a point of living his life, showing love. And people would say, why are you inviting the tax collector down out of a tree? Why would you go eat at the tax collector's house? And Jesus said, because he's a child of God too. People asked him repeatedly, how can you have all of these sinners with you at the dinner table? He said, because the kingdom is for all. And so they will gather here. He lived out that truth. And if we of the church are willing to live that out, then that is when God will clothe us in righteousness. Righteousness is God's response to us. Not something that we are given as an inheritance just because we are already in. If we will not live in such a way that others will hear Christ in our words and encounter Christ in our works of our hands and our feet, then it is not righteousness that we are pursuing. Instead, we are pursuing our own glory. We are living so that we might be justified in our own hearts. And that is not the way of Jesus Christ. Jesus lived an existence that most of us would find abhorrent. He lived homeless for three years, living off the good nature of others. Not just him, but his 12 apostles too. A roving band of out-of-work fishermen and tax collectors, living off the kindness of others, speaking Christ to them in their midst, occasionally giving back to a community, working his way down to Jerusalem, where there he slept out in what was the equivalent of a national park, living homeless off the land. That is where Judas took the authorities to arrest him. And when he had the chance to flee or to fight back or to throw somebody else under the bus, he went quietly and peacefully because he entrusted that his gospel would be preached by those who stayed behind. We are those who are here. We are those who would need to recognize that we serve a Savior who has taken every harsh word, every evil thought, every act of decimation so that we could stand righteous. And if we this week are unwilling to share that, then it is not those who are burning the cross that are profaning it. It is we who are forsaking it. This is our time. We will not change the world in one day, but one day at a time, we can transform how we engage and we can transform the way that the world encounters Christ in us. May it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful, and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. 
Have a great week.